Now let's begin. Star Trek guys. We're the guys that talk about Star Trek. My name is Chris Lockhart, and I am not alone. I am joined by three other gentlemen. First up, we have Ragnar. How's it going, Ragnar? Well, it's going uh, quite well, and it's also been a while since somebody called me a gentleman. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) We'll just call you a Viking who's gentle sometimes. (laughs) Also the same. And next up, we have Mr. Richard Zabo. How's it going, Rich? Fantastic. Good to be back. We're going to talk about some Star Trek, surprisingly. Let's go. Excellent. And last but not least, we have Curtis Holloway. How's it going, Curtis? Very well, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, all right. Well, for this episode, we're going to be talking about the Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation movies. Um, so there was four of them. Uh, we had Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. And, uh, I'm kind of interested to see what we all feel about these movies. Um, because to be honest with you, like, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. looking back and seeing how things played out. Um... I feel that the the original series movies are actually better, in my opinion. Um, like, like if I was going to, um, you know, because there's ten movies altogether with six original series, six TNG, or four, sorry, four TNG, six original. Yeah, four. Um, I would go Wrath of Khan, um, The Undiscovered Country. Uh, Search for Spock, uh, Voyage Home, then I would go First Contact, then Generations, then uh, Nemesis, uh, then probably Insurrection, then the Motion Picture, and then Star Trek V, the Voyage Home. That's uh, the motion. The Motion Picture was pretty bad. It it was, but to be honest with you, it's probably one of the most truest Star Trek movies in in the sense of you know seeking out new life and new civilizations. Like that was that movie. Um, it, you know, it wasn't. They weren't battling the Klingons. There was you know, it wasn't a a war movie or anything. It was you know them this basically saving Earth from this you know new life form. And, uh, yeah, it, I've, I've grown to appreciate it over the years, you know, and, and I mean, that being said, 
you know, these 10 movies are better than anything that J.J. Abrams did, in my opinion. Uh, better than, you know, these the new Star Trek shows that we get now. But to be honest with you, um, I think the TNG movies kind of suffered a bit. Um, but I'll get into that as we break into the talking about each movie. So before we get to that, I just wanted to do a little preamble uh, about the movies. Or leading up to the movies, I mean. Um, and I and I want to give a shout out to Ragnar. Uh, because uh, just prior to Christmas, he sent me a book uh, called uh, Star Trek Phase 2. And it was written by uh, Star Trek novelists um, and historians, uh, Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. Uh, so this was a book that came out in the late 90s, I think, but it, it told the story of Star Trek Phase 2. Um, so this, and believe it or not, this this series that never was made is going to lead into this discussion tonight. So Star Trek started, of course, with the original series and from 1966 to 69. It uh, was on NBC. You know, it was a, a, a television series that got canceled. It was it almost got canceled after season two, but a letter writing campaign that convinced NBC to bring it back. But they moved it to what they call the death slot uh, in the time schedule, which is 10 p.m. on a Friday. So as mm, as yeah, we all yeah, as we all know, usually on a Friday night, like if you're an adult, you're working, you know. Monday to Friday job, which a lot of people did back in those days. Uh, by Friday night, you're either going to be asleep by ten, or you're out at the bar. You're not. You're not sitting at home watching TV. So unfortunately, the ratings tanked in the last season of Star Trek. Plus, budget cuts didn't help the the show. Like if you if you ever walk, go back and rewatch the original series, there was a lot of what they call bottle episodes in season three, which means they didn't like go film on location. They just stayed on the ship for the episodes to save money. So it got canceled. Um, then it was sold to syndication and then it, it blew up. Like, it, you know, people were, were watching it. It became, you know, this cult favorite, uh, the early seventies, they started organizing star Trek conventions and then Paramount, um, in the mid-70s, was considering creating a new television network. Because uh, at the time, in the United States, there was just NBC, ABC, and CBS. So they were they wanted to create the, the fourth network. And they wanted Star Trek to be uh, one of the shows on it. So they, you know, called up Gene Roddenberry. He got together with some of his, uh, you know, some of the Star Trek uh, alumni that worked on the original series and they came up with Star Trek Phase 2 which would have saw Kirk McCoy and the rest of the original cast come back except for Leonard Nimoy um at the time uh Leonard Nimoy was in a legal dispute with uh Paramount because they were using uh Spock in like at like uh beer advertisement and different advertisements um around the world and they were not paying Leonard Nimoy for his likeness. So he was, oh. so yeah. So Paramount and Roddenberry were making all this money off Spock 
and Leonard Nimoy wasn't seeing a, a, a dime of it, right? So he was fighting with Paramount. So uh, for Phase 2, they created a new character named Zahn, which would have been a full-blood Vulcan. Uh, we would have had a new first officer with Commander Decker. Uh, we would have had a new female character named uh, Ilea, who was a Delton navigator. Uh, but then they decided they weren't going to do the network thing. <clears throat> and they actually built sets. They did some costume designs and all that kind of stuff uh, for the show. And then they scrapped it. And then, in 1977, a little movie called Star Wars came out. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of studios passed on, on Star Wars. Like, George Lucas oh, event, yeah. eventually, you know, got... Uh, 20th Century Fox to distribute the movie and I think they chipped in some money <clears throat> and it you know for like I think he made it for like 10 million dollars which is like crazy by today's standards and it was a smash success it was this huge thing uh this phenomenon that we all know now um but prior to that nobody really knew that this was going to take off the way it did so a lot of studios you know, having passed on Star Wars, we're now kicking themselves in the ass, and we're like, we need to, we need to jump on the space bandwagon. So Disney released the Black Hole, uh, I believe in '79, and then MGM. This is a pretty kick-ass movie. Yeah, I still, I still love the Black Hole, and it's on Disney Plus if anyone wants to check it out. Um, and then the uh, MGM was doing James Bond movies. Uh, so they did a James Bond movie set in space, which was Moonraker. Those are just a couple of, of examples of, of, you know, studios jumping on the bandwagon. And Paramount was no different. They were like, we got to do a space show or a space movie. We got, you know, like, this, what can we do? And someone said, hey, you know, we have the rights to Star Trek. We could do a Star Trek movie. And that's what they did. 1979, they reworked the Phase 2 pilot and concept and made Star Trek the motion picture. Uh, oh, I, so the Phase 2 pilot became the movie. Yeah, like, they did some reworking, because, like, Leonard Nimoy, like, by okay. then, had settled with yeah. Paramount, and he came back, and they and they basically didn't um, go with the Zahn character. Who? Yeah, they didn't create those characters, yeah. Well, De Decker and Ilya were in the first movie. Uh, oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, but I mean, they you know they uh, merge with V'ger at the end of the or end of the movie, and and they're gone. Um, yeah. But they you know they brought brought Spock back, and uh, I think it was a forty million dollar budget, which was crazy. You know, for the time. That's pretty big back in that time period. That's a lot of money. Oh yeah, considering Star Wars was only made for like ten, so I mean they blew their load on. Um, Special effects, you know, so a, a lot of people talk or say uh, Star Trek, the motion picture was Star Trek, the motionless picture because. Uh, oh, man, it was so boring. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's a long movie and it's a lot of them, you know, uh, the characters looking at the view screen, reacting to what they're seeing. And there yeah. was there's very little action. And it, and it did kind of poorly. You know, like, the Star Trek fans loved it, but the general public didn't. So, no. you, you know, know what? Uh, 
Imagine if imagine if you went to see Star Wars and then you went to see Star Trek having not watched the show expecting it to be like Star Wars. How disappointed you would be. Well, it was... Do you want to hear something funny, though? Go ahead, Rich. Um, the motion picture grossed better domestically than The Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock and The Final Frontier and Undiscovered Country. Wow. Yeah. And also, it worldwide grossed better than all of them. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So there really Probably. was there really was a space craze on. Yeah, that's that's likely what it is. Everyone was so hyped up, and then um, Wrath of Khan wasn't far behind domestically, only by four million, three and a bit. Okay. Uh, it didn't, didn't do nearly as well foreign, and overall, it did about ninety-seven million in in money for for that time. So like the early eighties. So yep. accounting for inflation, it's going to be more yep. obviously. But yeah, I have all the all the gross numbers here. If you're ever curious, um, I pulled up some of the information about all the movies. Excellent. So is that so when like when Star Wars came out, it was very popular, right? And it was yep. in theaters forever. <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah. Would you think there would have been a time when Star Wars, the first film, was still playing, and Star Trek was also playing? Probably. Um. It really depends on when exactly Star Wars was released. Star well, Star Wars was released in seventy seven, but it was such a huge hit, and they didn't have streaming services and things like that back then, so it stayed yep. in theaters forever. Yep, Did it stay in theaters for two years. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think it was making the rounds. Like it might not I, have been. I have not researched this, but I suspect it probably did. Yeah, I think it did. So. Uh, the motion picture released in December of 1979, so there is a chance that they played it in a theater together. Then, yeah, that that's cool. But so, yeah, the motion picture was financially successful, but wasn't critically successful. Was and um, I really don't think it it gelled with you know I don't know if you want to call them normies or you know not non Star Trek fans. Um, so they, you know, the, it was kind of on the fence if they were going to do another movie. Um, so then they brought in Harv Bennett, who was a TV producer. He was used to making, uh, good quality shows on the cheap, right? So they brought him in, Roddenberry kind of got pushed to the side and they decided, you know, let's, let's do another movie, you know, and they did it on a reduced budget. But they reutilized, you know, the sets and stuff from the motion picture. They just had to redress them a little bit. And then, yeah, The Wrath of Khan, I think, is probably the best-known Star Trek movie. Uh, it just kind of, you know, uh, hit with everybody and became this, you know, this phenomenon. And then Paramount was like, okay, these guys, you know, like, we got a success here. Let's keep going. Do you know, You know, just do what you want. And that's really what they did. So Star Trek Three, um, you know, they did the search for Spock. They got Leonard Nimoy to come back, um, be, you know, and they also gave him because he wanted to be a, a director. They gave him the chance to direct. So he directed the third movie, um, which out which worked out for the fourth one. Yeah, he he directed number four as well, but it worked out well for him for the third one. You know, being a new director because he wasn't actually in it 
in the movie as Spock a lot of the movie. Um, so that worked out. And then he did four and, and four is a, is a classic example of the studio just letting them do what they wanted to do. Like Leonard Nimoy was, <laughs> um, big into, uh, anti-whaling stuff. Like his whaling was like still a big thing in the eighties. Um, you know, like the humpback was like almost going extinct. Um, and you know, they, you know, he was, you know, really against whaling. So they did a movie about this, you know, about, uh, the whales and, it, and it was like the, the motion picture, there was like no, you know, villain or it was them, you know, going against a new life form or a different type of life form that was threatening the planet. Um, and yeah, so then Star Trek five, they kind of hit a wall because of Shatner, uh, and no disrespect to Shatner, but Star Trek five wasn't that great of a movie, but because in his contract, uh, basically his contract stated that anything Leonard Nimoy gets to do, he gets to do. So because Leonard Nimoy co-wrote and directed two movies he was like hey i want to write and direct a movie so they they said okay you know as part of the contract they had to had to honor it and we got star trek 5 the final frontier which isn't it isn't terrible but i mean it's not the greatest movie uh probably definitely my least favorite of the original series um and then when you got i think i liked it better than voyage home really oh Voyage Home, I, I I guess, has a special place in my heart. I, I don't know. I, I I remember watching that when it first came out. Um, Same here, but it was also one of the only VHS tapes that we had back then because we didn't buy yeah. a lot of movies, so maybe just partial. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah, like, that's the thing. Kids don't understand these days, you know, like... We're, you know, with streaming, where we got... You can ed- just watch whatever you wanted, whenever. Yep. And back then, it's like, you couldn't. You you know, it's like, well, I've watched this movie 20 times, but I'll watch it again because I don't got nothing else to watch. I can watch it again or I could sit here and stare at the wall. Oh, I'll watch it again. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then um, Star Trek Six rolled around. And again, you know, they told a story about, basically it was about uh, the fall of the USSR. Like, there was an allegory for that. Um you know, because Praxis, the Klingon moon, explodes, which uh, was a stand-in for Chernobyl. And then the Klingons are a stand-in for the Russian, or for the USSR. And, you know, the Federation was a stand-in for the United Nations and, and them, you know, coming to a, uh, an accord. Um, and, and with the original series cast, uh, you know with each movie because they weren't because they were never contractually obligated to to do a certain amount of movies like nowadays um when they when they do movie franchises they'll lock an actor into like say six movies um you know like we we saw it with uh chris evans as captain america we saw it with uh, robert downey jr as iron man um you know, they were only contractually obligated to do so many movies and then they didn't have to do any more if they didn't want to. The original series, they, like, um, they had to negotiate with them for every movie. So as the movies went on, it became more expensive to get the actors to do it. 
So their thought was, okay, let's just end it with Star Trek VI. It'll be the, you know, the final voyage of the Enterprise, the original crew. And it was. It was a nice send-off. And the thought was, you know, Next Generation will pick up the movie franchise when, when it's done. So Star Trek VI uh, came out in 1991, uh, December 1991. <clears throat> and then that was it. And then... 1994 rolled around next generation came to an end in may the end of may 1994 and then generations came out in november all right so here we are sorry about the uh, long preamble but this is how we got here um so let's talk about generations um ragnar what what are your overall thoughts on star trek generations well, I loved it. I, I remember as a kid going with my whole family to see it, even though my dad and my sister didn't really like Star Trek, mm-hmm. and everybody liked it. Yep. And we all and we all enjoyed it, and later on we rented it, and then um, we may have somehow made a copy of the rental, because I think we watched it quite a few times and I don't don't think we rented it that many times and it was a it was a movie that everyone in the family had something in it that they liked so yep that was you know real great and when I rewatched it I still like it I still think it's a really good movie um I like how they brought in the old cast to kind of hand off the torch to the you know like the original Star Trek cast to the next gen cast Yep. And I love how at the, you know, you have to get the two captains to team up at the end of the movie. I mean, that that was awesome. And Malcolm McDowell is a pretty good villain. He generally is pretty good in anything he's in. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, it had enough action to be exciting, but enough story to, you know, still have some substance. So... I think I think it's my favorite next gen movie, although First Contact is also pretty good. Those are definitely my two favorites. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Generations always will hold a special place in my heart just as a movie that I recall watching as a kid with my family and everybody liking. Yep. Um, with, with Generations, uh, I, I remember going to watch it in the theater and really loving it. You know, like, I know a lot of people nitpick it over the years, you know, like, you could have done a better story with Kirk and Picard and all that. And I'm, But, I mean, considering what they had at the time, you know, they did the best that they could. Um, yeah, for, for the time and the, and the budget and the popularity of the Star Trek franchise at that time, I think it was a pretty good effort all in all. I, yes, I agree. Um, the only... Well, first of all, before I get to my nitpick, um, I I love the posters for the. I think Generations has the best Star Trek movie poster. Um, I love the colors, um, you know, the purple, pinkish, um, and yeah, Malcolm Mandel was fantastic. It was great seeing Whoopi Goldberg back as Guinan. Yeah, yeah, it's great um, to see her back. But I mean, uh, I love that opening sequence, right? The the wine bottle floating through space slowly. Yeah, the dumpling. Yeah, that I love. Right. 
best sequence. What a, that, that's such a great sequence. And, and, and yeah, I loved seeing the Enterprise B. I thought that was fantastic. Um, but, yeah. But yeah. Uh, before I get to my nitpicks, let's go around the table. Uh, Richard, what are your overall thoughts on Generations? This is like a condensed, like, overall... Yeah, before before we get into yeah. our nitpicks and stuff that... Okay, so personally, like I'm a big fan. I really like Generations. Um, the movie poster is among my favorite. Even though Nemesis wasn't as good, I'll talk about that later, but I did like the movie poster for Nemesis. Oh, yeah. Nemesis has a good poster. <laughs> I, I agree. And like you said, the, the sequence... Of, of the Dom Perignon floating through space, cracking against the hull of the Excelsior class. And Excelsior class is still one of my favorite classes of Starship. It's just a big old thick girl, and I like thick girls. <laughs> so that, that, like, that ship is one of my – it's probably in my top ten easily. Um, I really appreciated the like, – Aside from being unable to get, I know, like, in the real world, there was just a lot of issues getting all of the actors, and they got, you know, they got three of them, which was still pretty good. They're three really good ones. Um, I really appreciated how they kind of, they somewhat focused on their age. And then Captain Harriman says, you know, I, I read your stories in grade school, and Shatner's like, uh, and I'm sure he was just thinking, you know, goddamn, I'm old, man. <laughs> and they're just like realizing they're getting old, and then, and then one of my favorite parts of that opening section there, that when Chekhov int- reintroduces Demora Sulu, Sulu's daughter, and it was yeah. just like a, that was a really nice, just like a, it wasn't, I wouldn't say necessarily fan service, but it was a nice like continuity thing, you know, like mm-hmm. in 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 the Prime Universe. Sulu had a wife and had a daughter, and and it was great, and I really appreciated that. And then the movie was, like, the plot was pretty good. Malcolm McDowell, as always, he did, like, as really well, honestly. I really enjoyed his performance. Um, There was, like, that that heart-tug moment, you know, when when he talked about the the death of, like, his family and, and how, like, how much that, like, rocked him but he this is the this is the Picard that I know this is the Picard that like I get you know the Picard and Star Trek Picard not the same guy this guy he's he's got to face those those terrible emotions but he doesn't want to and then you know he does and he has to cry and he like you know Deanna's there to help him that was really powerful stuff I find um and it was very big, big of Shatner to like, you know, he, he could have sat in that chair and just been like, yeah, I'll just, I'll be in command. But he's like, no, no, this isn't my ship. This, the whole point of this is to pass on the reins and say, you know what, you're the captain. You need to be the captain. Sit in this chair. I'll go do the thing. And that was pretty great. But one thing I noticed, I rewatched. Uh, not most of these movies recently, actually, including Generations, was the first one, and, and it was so convoluted, like climbing down ladders and like crossing like like catwalks and like 
dude, is it not like a little bit easier to get to places on a spaceship? Like, yeah, you're right. They, they did make a pretty big sequence out of that. Him they getting did, there. and like it was, was all right, but it felt maybe unnecessary. Yeah. And then, um, and then of course, like the the tragic, you know, damage and the loss of Shatner, Shatner, the loss of uh, Kirk. But then they cut to 79, 78 years later, and it's the HMS Enterprise, and it's, you know, from, like, the 1800s, just really nice, big ship. <laughs> that was just, like, the the promotion um, for Worf and, like, the, the kind of the cosplay, essentially, <laughs> that they did was awesome. Like, it was really well done. And even though, okay... Okay, hot take. I thought it was fucking hilarious that Data pushed Dr. Crusher into the ocean. I lost it. I just was like, you know what? That's still funny 20 years on, and I'm okay with it. Even though Jordy was like, that was not funny. It's like, bruh, that was funny. You're just a little bit, you're just a little bit of a whiner, you know? <clears throat> so there's that. But overall, like, yeah, it was... It was pretty good. It's one of my favorite um, Star Trek movies overall. I think it was pretty well done. Not perfect, of course, but pretty well done. And I guess we'll get into more detail more, but I'd give it like like a seven, seven yeah. fives overall. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Excellent. Uh, Curtis, you're right, I ended up rambling. My bad. That's okay. That's okay. Curtis, your overall view of Generations. Well, like so many folks in my age bracket that were Star Trek fans, it was the first Star Trek movie I saw in theater. And it was also the first time I'd ever seen the Duras sisters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's go. Let's go. So being a young man at the time, the hormones raging and, well, actually, I think they were just, just firing up. But that was the most cleavage I'd ever seen on screen. So I immediately knew I was a fan of the movie. Um, <laughs> objectively, it's not a fantastic piece of cinema. But personally, I'll always really enjoy it because of the little moments, like like Data pushing Troy into the water and various little things like that. But the, the scene that sticks out to me the most... Um, I remember when the saucer had separated and they were going down and Data goes, oh, shit. The whole theater busted out laughing because nobody had ever seen anything like that out of Data before, obviously, with his emotion chip and all that stuff. Sorry to interrupt you, but was that the first swear that we heard in Star Trek? Aside Um, from hell and heck and damn, yes, I believe it was. The most severe one up to that point, at the very least. Yeah. Well, we, but it was so funny because we, it only worked because it was data. Yeah, that that was the first swear word that was spoken by um, one of the main characters. But in Star Trek Four, like that punk rocker that's on the bus, you um, oh, he swears. No, the His song the, the says, song he he's listening you. to as like the f bomb, I think. Or no, uh, maybe it's just okay. screw you. But he he flips. Uh, Flips the bird at Shatner. Um, yeah. And they also say double dumbass, I guess. But yeah, this was the first, like, yeah, real swear. 
And yeah, I, I, I experienced the same thing, Curtis. My, my whole theater just bust out laughing with that. It was awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was living sort of out towards your neck of the woods at the time. Maybe we went to the same theater and saw it at the same time. How do I know? It might, well, I saw it at uh, West Edmonton Mall. Um, not the, the old famous Players Theater. Um, oh yeah, right. The oh, one yeah. that was the, over the phase, by where phase um, three or whatever. Yeah. No, no, sorry, phase no, it's one. It's in phase two. It's on like the second floor. Yeah, yeah, it's long gone. It's now. right near one of the entrances. Yeah, it, it yeah. it's been gone for ages. I would have seen it either there or at Westmount. I honestly don't remember. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I probably saw but, it at famous so place. The at chances Westmount. are not zero. That's cool. That's cool. Um all right. Well, um, so when I was talking earlier about, um, you know, how with the the original Star Trek movies, they kind of let them do their own thing after the success of Star Trek II. Um, with the Star Trek The Next Generation movies, I can, like now looking back at them, I can definitely see there was a lot of studio interference with this with these movies and by that i mean like uh when a student like when they make these movies like obviously like paramount owns the movies they're putting out the money for the movies so um sometimes you know when we talk about when we say studio interference what we're referring to is those executives saying okay we'll let you do your star trek movie but uh, but we want to see this this and this um and one thing that you'll notice with the TNG movies, all of them, every one of them, they all end. They all have a a, a main bad guy, each movie, um, and they all end with Picard physically fighting the bad guy um, in an action sequence. That 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 is a studio mandate. You know, they wanted Picard not seen as, you know, a diplomat or, you know, one of those, you know, like in typically in TNG, he talks things out with diplomacy. He doesn't really use his fists. Um, so I always found it ironic that Kirk, the captain that's always beaten people up on the show did less fighting in the movies than Picard did. <laughs> um, so that always kind of bugged me, you know, I was like, you know, um, so overall, I just feel like the TNG movies just kind of suffered with too much studio interference, um, which I get, you know, like you're, you know, if you're a business person, you're going to want to see certain things. Um, so yeah, um, so some of my nitpicks with this, um, I did see, I did love seeing Lursa and Bator. It was great seeing them. Uh, but I have a hard, like, one thing that really bothered me, and this was another studio mandate. Uh, they wanted the Enterprise destroyed. They wanted a new ship for the movies. And so they, so they said, like, in this movie, the Enterprise has to get taken out. Um, so that always bothered me that a galaxy class enterprise is taken out by an old Klingon bird of prey. Um, like the, like the enterprise literally went into battle against the Borg. Uh, 
but then they get taken out by an old Klingon ship. Like, yes, they can penetrate their shields, but even with that, the Enterprise still outguns them like 20 to 1. Like, even even if they were penetrating their shields, the Enterprise would have been able to take them out. No problem. But they didn't. And that just, that always bothered me. You know, like, you know, it would have been better if, like, say, Soren, like, launched a, a, a different missile towards the Enterprise and blew, you know, like, disabled it. Then I could see, maybe, you know... Or if the, the Dura sisters had a more powerful ship, or like a Vorchok class, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I knew yeah. that was coming. Well, that and plus they reused that explosion from the undiscovered country, the bird of prey blowing up. It's the exact same shot, <laughs> only it's, it is. It is. Frame I, for frame. I, yeah, I think it's reversed though, so it, it blows up the, the other way, like the other side of the, your TV screen instead of the. You know, whatever like say. Yeah. Image. Okay. So that it's like, guys, really? You know, you're not gonna spend a little bit money on, on blowing up that ship. Um so I, I never Okay, liked... but counterpoint. At least we got to see Riker giving like the best order to fire of all of Star Trek. But, in my opinion. But my it, opinion. It, and I and just, the, the the camera pans around to Jonathan Frakes and he just goes fire and he's got like the face and the timing and the inflection it all just friggin works but so badass it it is but the problem with that though is because before they send the signal to for the bird of prey to to cloak he literally says they're only going to have like three seconds of vulnerability so after they send the signal they do like this where where you know the uh, our Bator says we're cloak, or you know, or no, the Klingon guy says we're cloaking. Our shields are down, and then you see the sh- the shot of the Enterprise, and then you know it's a cool thing where Riker's like fire, and then it's like the longest torpedo shot ever. It like it's like <laughs> the three seconds of vulnerability are literally I th- I think someone timed it out. It was like seventeen seconds. So why didn't why didn't that bird of prey just move to the side? You know what I mean? Like that, that, like it wasn't like on, on, um, the undiscovered country where it had like, you know, like that, uh, gas, uh, that, that tracker for, uh, gaseous anomalies, you know, that they put into the torpedo. It would have flown right past them if they had just moved. Um, so that was always a nitpick for me too. Um, I, so, as much as I loved seeing Whoopi Goldberg show up in this movie, she was she was not in season seven at all. And I always wondered, like, where is she? Like, I know, you know, behind the scenes where she was. She was, you know, making a lot of movies. Um, you know, yeah, wasn't that like she was doing Sister Act or something? Yeah, she was doing Sister Act. She did that one with Ted Danson where they have a kid together. Uh, what? I don't remember that, but I remember Ghosts. Yeah, and well, the, Sister Act. I actually really like Sister Act. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah Sister Act kicked ass. No, uh, I can't remember the name of that movie. It was with because she was actually I can't remember if she's dating Ted Danson or was married to him, but they were together at the time. Um, where like she had a daughter from like a sperm bank donor, and then it turns out it was like Ted Danson. Um, it was it was a it was a romantic comedy 
thing. It, it, I liked it at the time. But anyway, I knew she was busy doing movies. So I kind of felt like when she showed up in this movie, you know, they should have explained where she was. Like, you know, maybe she went back home for a while. You know, I, I you know, a little bit of fan service, I think, was needed there. Um, but the biggest sin for this movie... That was too soon, man. Her home got destroyed by the Borg. Why are you going to be like that? <laughs> um, Sorry to interrupt. They should have done the whole 10 forward thing from Picard then. That would have been cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like the 10 forward bar that's on wherever the hell city it's in. L.A. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would have preferred us in L.A., but I'll take it. But the the biggest sin that they did with this movie, and speaking of Star Trek Picard, it, it resonates in, in spe- particularly the second season of Star Trek Picard and the first season. Uh, they killed off Robert and Rene Picard off screen. Um, so he, Picard gets the notice that his brother and his nephew are dead, that they died in a house fire. So Picard mentions them, but he never says what about Marie, who was Renee's mom. Like, we assume she died, too, but he doesn't actually say it. Um, so that's never established. And honestly, like, I realized... I, Ro- I have something to add on that. Go, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I read the novel of Generations at one point, and it really seemed like the focus of, of Picard's concern, because we're sort of experiencing that moment through Picard, and in the novelization, the big thing that was hitting him was that he would be the last Picard. Yeah. So Marie, married or not, isn't like a bloodline Picard. There wouldn't oh, yeah. be any more from that bloodline. So yeah. maybe that's why in the movie they, they sort of glossed over it a little because it, it was in the book, though. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's not a big deal, but, I mean, you know, that they did mention Marie, but um, they killed off Robert and Renee. I, I, and I really like those characters from, you know, the one episode they were in. Um, I like that Picard had an older brother. I like that, 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 that they were able to, you know, mend, mend uh, fences there. And then they killed him off screen. And then when Picard's flipping through his scrapbook of pictures, it's not even the same actors from the, sh- from the episode. So it's like, you know, the, it was like them rubbing salt on the wound for me. Um <laughs> And and to be honest, like it, I felt it wasn't needed. You know, like if you didn't have that scene in the movie, like it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, and then years later, you know, Picard is you know supposedly living at his ancestral home, but it's like, wait a second, your brother was living at your ancestral home and it burnt down. So how does that work? And then in season two of Picard, they don't even mention. Robert at all, like in the flashbacks and stuff, and I'm like, man, you know, I'll have, to, I'll have to take your word for it because so, I'm not watching season two. Yeah, don't that, that brings up it. an interesting point. So they have transporter technology, replicator technology, all of that stuff. They can store patterns for, you know, books and yep. dishes and clothing and whatever else. So you would think that. By that time, we've sorted out this, you know, fire damage thing, and there's no such thing as, like, prohibitive cost anymore, because nothing costs anything. You would think that someone would just be able to, like, 
transport away the burned remains of the house and just replicate a brand new house from a stored pattern that would have like See. obviously it wouldn't be the original physical matter but you yeah. would just be like oh yeah no problem we'll just erase my old burned house and download you know but the, pr- the but, last saved version of my house. But the problem that's what I would that's honestly what I assumed happened. But the problem with that theory though is in season two, Picard hides something in the twentieth century in the in the brickwork of uh, his house oh. that isn't revealed until the twenty fifth century. Oh well, thanks Kurtzman for ruining it more. See, but well, I, you know what though? I to be fair, um there's a lot of places in the world, even now, that are rebuilt or remodeled, and they keep certain sections of it. It's still a stretch, but there are or could be certain sections of the whole manor. Um, I don't remember exactly, because I don't think that it was the entirety of the property. I think it was just like yeah, a section theory. of the property. In theory, if it burned down and he knew one part didn't burn down, that could be the part he hid the thing in. Yeah, maybe. So, I mean, it, it, theoretically, like, it, it, it's not that far out of the realm of possibilities, you know? But, what, but when, I totally get your nitpick, Chris. But when Curtis was talking about, like, the transport, like, I thought you were going to go with something different. One thing that always bugged me, even, even back then, I'm like, this is the 24th century. Nobody has smoke detectors. Like I, I, I realize Robert was like he he liked living in the past. He didn't like modern technology, but I mean, smoke detectors in the twenty fourth century, like you know, like you would think they would be part of the building code well, or something. It. I was going to say his preference doesn't override like building codes and stuff. And you would think that if they can generate force fields, they would just be like, okay, we're going to put a force field around the fire sucked all the oxygen out and now there's no more fire yeah like so the detector like would just take care of it immediately have evolved. <laughs> yeah right? so yeah. unless the whole house was natural sure. it's not like um it's not like riker's house was on that one planet where he just had like basically a ship in his house and he's like computer shields up you know <laughs> that's literally what he says in season two of card he's like yep computer shields up yeah, so, uh, yeah, that always always bugged me, you know, like, that they killed them off, uh, you know. I agree. I don't like that. Um, and then another thing I noticed, and it wasn't, I didn't actually notice it when I first watched it, but it was something that I was watching re- more recently when I was watching a scene or two from, from Generations. You could tell it's a movie because there's so many extras on this show. Are on this like like for example in generations like the bridge like where did all these people come from like the bridge was never that packed on the show uh, same with ten forward <laughs> like people are like tripping over themselves there's so many people in ten forward but yet it wasn't like that on the show um, again it's a movie budget so they can afford extras and they can afford the time to make sure the extras are in the proper places and and all that kind of thing. So it's crazy when you think like a, a movie takes, you know, two to three months to make a two hour movie, but yet a TV show, they do it in seven days. Sometimes less. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, all right. Well, that's all I got for generations. Do you guys have anything you wanted to add before we move on? 
I don't think so. Well, I mean, I'm, Captain Kirk dies. That's a big deal. Feels like at least he died on the bridge. Over that. Well, okay. So here's something. I do have something <laughs> on the bridge. So uh, one of our listeners, Steph, who I mentioned last episode, she took me to see William Shatner when he came to town. I don't know, like ten years ago or something like that. Yeah, and one of the that. things he he talked about Kirk's death scene and what he was thinking about when he was filming it. And the last things that Captain Kirk says are, oh, my. And he was saying that, in at least in his own head canon, Kirk was seeing, like, the unfolding of the next adventure. Like, whatever it is that you're going on to when you're done here, mm-hmm. that's what Kirk was getting a glimpse of. And that's what he was saying, oh, my, about. That's cool. So, for anyone who wasn't at William Shatner that night, that's what he had to say about it. Um... Actually, there there is one more thing that I forgot to mention, and it's probably the biggest plot hole in any Star Trek movie. The big oh, let's have it. The biggest plot hole. Okay, so you know, and I, I mean, it was an amazing sequence. You know, like when you saw the Enterprise crash, and then Soren launches the missile, creates that supernova, and then you see the you know the Enterprise being destroyed, the planet being blown up. It was a really cool sequence. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. He, you know, and then he meets up with Kirk and the Nexus, and all that kind of stuff. Then they use the Nexus to go back in time, to to undo what was done. So if Picard can go back in time, why not go back in time like a week, and stop Soren? You know, like why why go back in time just before he launches the missile? So, you know, you're at you have this quick timetable. You only got like two minutes to stop him. Why not go back before this even happened? I have a theory. Go ahead. So, um, another one of our listeners, uh, Bud, who worked at um, does Bud still work there, Richard? Yeah. Okay, so he brought up. One time I was chatting with him after he was listening to our podcast. He was saying, you know, you guys should talk more about Guinan. And his theory, because Guinan was present in the Nexus talking to Picard, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So he pointed out that when Q takes the Enterprise to encounter the Borg, um, Guinan pops up from behind the counter and she does this weird hand gesture. And she it's almost as if she intimidates Q a little bit. Yep. And he was like... Why is that? It's never really explained. And his theory was maybe because there's at least a part of Guinan in the Nexus when Picard goes there, which is, as far as we know, chronologically after Guinan was present in the Nexus during the opening events of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it is that part of Guinan's consciousness is permanently in the Nexus, and that's what gives her some sort of something, whatever it is that intimidates Q. Maybe it's some sort of clairvoyance or like, if not omniscience, then something close to it. Yep. Perhaps she knew something that Picard didn't, and she specifically persuaded Picard to go back to that particular moment in time because that's how things were, quote-unquote, supposed to play out. And we know that Guinan has a sense of how things are supposed to be based on um, the episode with where Tashi Yar comes back. And then goes with the Enterprise C. Was it yesterday's Enterprise? Yep. Was that the one? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
long, big, convoluted fan theory there. Nothing, nothing solid. Don't take that as a claim and you come yell at me on Facebook about it. I'm just <laughs> throwing it out there. You can yell at me on Facebook if you want to. Just, you know, not about that. Um, so that's just the theory that I have. And with Bud's help. Credit yeah. goes to Bud for coming up with that. They just, yeah, they needed to make it more clear. Like what was, you know... Cause that you know, like I, I've heard that I agree. Brought, I've heard that brought up so many times. Like, why did you know? Like, Kirk didn't need to die. Like, Picard literally, and Kirk and Picard could have went back in time a week before and just like arrested Soren before they knew that he was you know the bad guy. Because Picard would have remembered everything. He would have known about the missile right. and you know his plan and all you know all this stuff. Um. But anyway, that, that's that's all I got for that. Um, all right. Well, the next movie is 1996's Star Trek: First Contact. Um, this was for me. This was the first Star Trek movie that I went to on my own. By that I mean, like I went and saw Undiscovered Country and Generations in the theater, but I wasn't of driving age yet. So my parents took me, like they dropped me off at the theater and I and went and watched those movies. First Contact was the first movie I actually drove to because I was 16 when it came out. And um, I loved it. Uh, I really did. Um, I, of course, I'm, I have some nitpicks. Um, but before we get to that, my general overview. Um, I, and this movie also has a glaring plot hole problem but anyway i'll get to that but overall i you know i did actually like the concept of them having a queen uh you know if you're if you're basing this you know the borg on like a hive mind you know like they're like hornets or whatever um you know where they you know they have drones it would it totally makes sense that they would have a queen um i like that i thought that was pretty cool um i did like you know you know, seeing Zephram Cochran, um, although he, he is different than uh, his appearance on the original series. Of course, it was a different actor playing him and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on that actor's name. Um, James Cromwell III. Yes, James well, Cromwell. From, from the movie. Yeah, James Cromwell, amazing actor. I love that guy. Um, he was fantastic. Alfre Woodward was great in this uh, movie as well. It was great seeing, even if it's just for like a quick couple shots, I loved seeing the Defiant on the big screen. I, I, I remember when, when, when you seen the Defiant and they were playing the Klingon music for Worf, I was like, yes, this is awesome. Um, and then of course, like, you know, like the, the big fight at sector zero, zero one, seeing all the different, you know, new star, uh, starships that were constructed. Uh, I love that. Um, and of course the Enterprise E. I, I like the Enterprise E. Uh, as much as, you know, I hated them destroying the Enterprise D in the previous movie, I liked the Enterprise E. Uh, I like the way it looks. I, lo I love <laughs> probably my favorite bridge layout, to be honest. Um you know, I thought everything looked great. I, you know, I loved the new uniforms because that this was uh, prior to them using them on Deep Space Nine. Uh, 
Um, so they made their debut on Deep Space Nine, uh, I guess it would have been like January 97. Um, so this was like November 96. So, uh, this was the first time we saw like the, the, these uniforms and I, they're my favorite uniforms, uh, out of Star Trek. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, overall, um, I do have some nitpicks, but I'll get to that. But, you know, out of the TNG movies, it, it is kind of a toss up between generations in this one. Um, I think this one nudges out generations a little bit. Um, but, uh, not by much. Uh, Curtis, what are your thoughts on Star Trek First Contact? Well, this is my favorite TNG movie, possibly my favorite Star Trek movie. And the reason is because, as I mentioned, we did not have a large VHS library for you kids out there. That's how we used to watch movies. Um, and it was on TV at some point. Or something, and we um, well, something happened, and somehow it ended up on on tape. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was one of the movies that I had to watch. It was like pretty much Indiana Jones, one Star Wars movie, and TNG: uh, First Contact. Well, those are those are so, three solid movies to watch. Yep, I can I can recite any of those movies line for line. <laughs> <laughs> Because Country Kid, we had three channels, so I really didn't have much to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three, five, and 13, and I think they were. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was the one that I got to see the most often alongside The Voyage Home. We also had The Voyage Home on tape. Um, but yeah, it was so cool. I, I had always been terrified of the Borg because they were so badass when they were a TNG villain before Voyager neutered them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't really point to exactly what it is about First Contact other than the fact that it's what I grew up watching constantly. Um, it was cool seeing the evolution of Data. You know, he had his emotion chip in Generations and never really touched on that. He had some difficulties, but at one point they're walking through the Borg-infested section of the ship and Data's like, Sir, I believe I'm experiencing anxiety. Picard's like, maybe you should shut that thing off. Data's like, yeah, okay, done. And that was just hilarious. Um, I wish I could do that sometimes. Yep. But um, I don't know. I, I, I like the fact that like they were so close, really, to losing the Enterprise. Captain Picard was about to destroy his ship to try and like preserve the past, which you know, repeated theme in Star Trek. Love it. Um, I'm sure I'll think of other stuff as the discussion goes on. That's all I got for now. But yeah, it's it's, it's one of my favorites. I, I can't say that it's objectively a fantastic movie, but it's just it's got a special place for me. Excellent. Uh, Richard, your overall thoughts of First Contact? I'm pretty much there with Curtis. Um, First Contact was probably always will be my favorite TNG movie, even after rewatching all of them now. Um, Generations is great. First Contact was great. Um, For me, for TNG, it goes First Contact, Generations, Nemesis, then Insurrection, and we'll get to the other ones later. But this one, just, it had, it had some action. It had a B plot. It had, you know, 
some red shirts dying, which I love it when red shirts die. That's a Star Trek thing. That's a, that's cool for me. Um, I also love every time Worf gets to use his mechleth, and he busted out the mechleth and he beat up some Borg. I, I can I can get it. I can stretch my imagination. In space. In space, right. Walking on the hull of the Enterprise, just <laughs> slashing people. Right? And I can, I can stretch my imagination that he would use some of the Borg wires to, like, tie up his spacesuit. Possible? Not really. But, you know what? I didn't care, because it, it meant that Worf survived. I mean, if um, anyone on the ship can pull them tight enough, it's Worf or Data, and nobody else. Right, exactly. So, that was cool. Um... And then, of course, you know, the, I think, iconic line warp is like, assimilate this, that he shoots up the deflector dish, which clicked in my head. If they blew up the deflector dish, how did they use the deflector to create another <laughs> portal to go back to where they came from? And I don't, could they just made a new one? Is that even the thing? Like, I don't know. So that one, that one, I haven't figured out yet. <clears throat> um, I really, I really like Zephyr Cochran, and I like how real he was. It seemed to me that, you know, um, a lot of great men in history had greatness thrust upon them, and he's like a prime example of that. Like, he's a regular dude. He wants the big dollars. He wants the women. He wants the island and retirement. Doesn't even like to fly. He just did something that he thought was cool, and he didn't. Imagine it would be the pinnacle turning point in the history of the Earth. He was just a regular guy like you and me. Um, I will say, though, I liked Alfred Woodward. Mostly there were some parts where she was a bit extra and I was just, you know, like eh, I was a little bit much, but she grew on me, you know, again near the end after the rewatch. And I was like, yeah, she's not that bad. But one Well, part and she I... was in, like, one of the coolest scenes Picard's ever been in, where they're in his ready room, and she, like, triggers the Moby Dick thing. And the, I don't know. I, that, that was a really enjoyable scene. It's, like, one of the more inspiring moments where Captain Picard realizes, like, holy crap, maybe she's got a point, and I am hunting Moby Dick. And that's, that's when the whole movie changes. Sorry to You're cut right. you off. That's right. That's that's a good point. And, you know, even though she hadn't, you know, read the book, it was one of those moments where you're just like, if you just got to say the right thing, it just like clicks and now that person will get it. And yeah, that was a great scene. I thought it was the observation lounge. I, yep. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it was. But, um, and then this is a little bit off topic, but the ship itself, I love the Sovereign class, more than the Galaxy class. Um, Sovereign class is one of my favorite ships, probably top five, actually. It's, and it's a really awesome ship to use in Star Trek Online, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was coming up at some point. Oh, of course. It had to. I had, it's out of the way now. We're okay. <laughs> so there's that. The Phoenix, I thought the Phoenix itself was cool, too. Like, it all of the the basic designs for all of the ships, you can kind of, like, get a feel for it when you're looking at the Phoenix. You're like, oh, it's got a hull, and it's got the got the nacelles. Like, I, I like that. Um, 
and then the sort of like awkward introduction between the between Zephram and between uh, the Vulcans that was that was pretty cool. I like that. I thought like honestly, I'd give it like an eight, like just a little bit better than Generations, but for different reasons. Um, I did I did love that like how Data, you know, I, I'm not going to say almost, but you know the the zero point x x x seconds. You know, it was, feels like an eternity to an android. That was a great line. And the whole time he was just playing. Like, he he played that queen hard, and she had no idea, and it was great. And then he just won. And But, yeah, great movie. I really like it. And there's some good action, some good plot points. Uh, obviously some nitpicks, but, yeah, it was really good. And Ragnar, your general overview. Um, a lot of what Richard said. Um, something that I noticed upon original viewing and, and still find on repeat viewings is that there's a shift in this movie compared to Generations where this movie, in my head, is way more of an action movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, especially when I first saw it, being like, well, this is awesome, because I love when Star Trek has action in it. Unfortunately, later on in the franchise, when J.J. Abrams came in, and pretty much since then, they've put a lot of focus on action, and, and they've gotten away from what makes Star Trek Star Trek. Yeah. But at the time of this movie, they put in more action sequences... And it still felt like Star Trek to me, and I really enjoyed it. I also loved the creation of the Borg Queen. I thought that made perfect sense. I thought that was a really cool add-on. And she was, like, kind of seductive and super creepy at the same time. You know, like when she's, like, blowing on Data's fake skin, or that skin graft so that he can enjoy the sensation you're like this is erotic but also she is repulsive it's like oh. she's the ultimate cyberpunk goth hot uh, yeah chick. yeah <laughs> um yeah so i i thought that was all really good um i didn't really care for the um i can't remember the character's name um but she was played by alfrey woodard yeah, I, I never really liked that character. Lily. Yeah, she yeah, wasn't yeah, my favorite. I, I kind of felt like that character wasn't really necessary to the story. Um, uh, well, the, and, and that felt more like, oh, this is something the studio said. You got to have, you know, some kind of little love interest. Um, it didn't ruin the movie, didn't detract from it, but I'd say that's one of the weaker parts. Yeah, the the reason why she was brought in, essentially, uh, from a narrative perspective, uh, she was our POV character she, for the new Enterprise. So she was the one that Picard, you know, explains what, you know, the different parts of the new ship, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's our first time having seen that. But I, I totally agree with you, Ragnar. I don't think she was needed. Um, I don't no, think... I don't think I don't think we needed a point of view character like we, you know, yeah. as because um, I mean, to be honest with you, 
you know, and any movie you watch, like if you're watching a movie about like a submarine, are they going to go over and explain all the things about a submarine to the viewer? No, they kind of already think that you know a little bit about it, yeah. right? I mean, we've we this isn't our first Federation starship we've been on. We've been on other ships before. We kind of get the gist of it. And yeah. I again, like I agree with you, Ragnar. I think it was another studio mandate that they have, you know, a love interest, preferably, you know, uh, a person of color, um, you know, just to kind of, you know, hit those marks. Uh, but I honestly think they should have not had that character and given her lines to Dr. Crusher. Because one thing about these TNG movies is Dr. Crusher really has nothing to do. Um, and I, and I think that's too bad because I think Gates McFadden is a good actress. I like the character. Like, wh why wouldn't Crusher and Picard yeah. be having that discussion? You know, like, I know, I know, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I, I felt bad for it. Yeah. Um, a couple things to note. Yeah. Um, I wanted to throw out there, uh, the guest stars in this movie. Uh, we got to see Barkley, um, which I thought was hilarious. Um, cause he would be that guy that would be fanboying, fanboying on Zephram Cochran. Um, so I, I like that they included him. I loved Robert Picardo showing up in this movie. Um, yes! I forgot about that. That was fucking kick-ass when that happened. Yeah. I thought that was that oh, was Oh, man, fantastic. that was so great. And, uh, yeah, e yeah. and Ethan Phillips, uh, the guy who played Neelix on Voyager, uh, he is um, the doorman in the... Uh, the gangster casino. Oh right, on the holodeck. And that was one, right. one yeah. thing I wanted to say is I love the the big goodbye, the Dixon Hill novel mm -hmm. homage. I thought that was great. And then he yep. gunned down the Borg. That just that was kick ass. That was pretty cool. Yeah, with a Tommy gun, that was awesome. Um, yeah, that was cool. Uh, Ragnar, was there anything else you wanted to throw out there? No, no, I think we covered it. All right. Um, okay, so my I got some nitpicks, but the biggest one is is the big plot hole for this movie. Can you guys guess what the what the plot hole would be? If if you guys the time travel. Yes. So if if the Borg can go back in time, why did they even like try to invade yeah. the Federation? Why didn't they just go back in time outside of Federation space? And then th there would be no one to stop them. Um, I think... Yeah, like they did it out of order. You would think that they'd travel back in time and then cross the galaxy. Yeah. Instead of flying into hostile territory and then triggering the yeah. time travel when you could easily be stopped. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that it was an emergency plan B. They intended to go conquer the Federation in the 24th century, failed hard, and then they're like, okay, all we've got left is this last-ditch chance, and it might not work, and then 
0.3% chance the the fissure or the you know the portal whatever I don't remember what it's called opened up and they got to go back in time. That's the only thing I can think of, and I'm not trying Logical to defend conclusion. it. I agree, but it's the only thing I can think of. Well, the problem with that though <clears throat> is that they attacked with a single board cube at the beginning of first contact. They've already tried invading sector zero zero one with a single board cube and has failed before. They wouldn't do it again and expect a different result. That's not how yeah. the board work, man. Come on. Exactly. I, I um, agree. And it is a movie, but I'm saying that that's just that's how I would assume they well, came to that process. And you said it right there. Why would they do that? The answer is because the script said so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in yeah, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> I, again, get, getting back to the studio mandates thing, I think they said, like, we want time travel. We want the Borg. We want a person of color as a love interest. Uh, also as the POV character. We we want the Borg to be scarier. Because that was something that kind of drove me nuts about this movie. Is the fact that the Borg... The Borg seem angry. Like, when they're w- walking around, they always have, like, this angry expression on their face. Um, <laughs> and, and to me, like... What scared me about the Borg originally, uh, like, talking best of both worlds... Uh, was that they ne- like they never had an expression on their face. They were just like blank. They were just drones. Pure indifference. Yeah, yeah, like they like they just didn't care. But it seemed like in this movie, like like and especially the makeup, because like the the gray skin kind of had like a green tinge to it. And you know, like like of course they have a movie budget. They can spend more money on makeup and all that kind of stuff. But I just, I just find like the pale-skinned, emotionless-looking Borg were far scarier than they were in First Contact when they were almost like a zombie. At this point, I think I think you're right. Although I just wanted to, to toss in that basically every time we see the Borg, they look better than the time before. Like if yeah. you go back and you watch <clears throat> the first the first appearances of the Borg. They're really hokey compared to how yeah. they get. Yeah. But you're right. They're scarier when they're totally emotionless and they, they just don't care. They're like a zombie. You're right. That did make them scarier. And, and in, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and the studio mandate again with, you know, they have to have a central villain. I think that's where the Borg queen came from. I like, I do like the concept. Yeah. Like it does, it does make sense, yeah. but, yeah. What the Borg though from from Best of Both Worlds, what scared me about them was the fact that they wanted to take away your individuality. They wanted to turn everyone yeah. into drones. And that's scary to me that you know, like when Picard is, you know, um when the Borg's telling him, you know, you will be assimilated, and he's like, No, my my culture's based on freedom and self determination. And um, you know, the Borg say, you know, uh, self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. And Picard says, we would rather die. And then they say death is irrelevant. Like that was scary. Yeah. Like that, that emotionless, you know, cold, you know, um, vibe that they put out was in my opinion, scarier than the queen seeing like this, you know, almost like a, must, a mustache twirling villainous, you know, like, ha I'm the queen, you know, like it, it was a cool concept, but 
I, I felt the Borg were more threatening when you didn't have that central villain. Yeah. But, but I mean, again, it makes sense that they would have a queen, but, you know, if you're going for the hive thing, but anyway. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's talk about Star Trek Insurrection. So only two years later, we got, in 1998, we got Star Trek Insurrection, the third uh, Star Trek Next Generation movie. Um, that Oh, I should, have, I should point out, um, First Contact was the first TNG movie directed by Jonathan Frakes, who's Commander Riker, of course. And then he also directed this, uh, the third movie, Star Trek Insurrection. Um, again, this uh, movie has a big plot hole. Uh, but I'll get to that. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't hate this movie. I, I visually, I love the, the, you know, the briar patch. I like the fact that they went with a different alien race. Um, you know, and I mean, they were freaky looking with the stretched skin. Uh, not unlike a lot of Hollywood celebrities, to be honest with you, like, like Madonna and, uh, Ruafo, very similar looking. Like, you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I kind of, I kind of. Um, but you know, it, it, yeah, probably my least favorite TNG movie. Um, but although I do love uh, when Riker shaves his beard, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, him finally getting with Troy, it's like yes, like, and you know. Enough times passed. Like let, let let's just uh, you know let's just get this going. Um, but yeah, it had this had a big plot hole in it, um, and I and I think we mentioned this before because this movie takes place during the Dominion War, and it does get mentioned um, at the beginning of the movie because you know they're they're welcoming more people into the Federation, more civilizations sooner rather than later because of the dominion war because they need allies um but i would rather have seen a dominion battle in this movie if you're going to do an action movie um rather than seeing picard fighting ruafo i would rather have seen him fighting at you know the jemadar or something um but anyway uh before i get to the nitpicks let's go around the table uh, Richard, what are your thoughts on Star Trek Insurrection? So, <clears throat> I didn't hate it. I just, when you look at T, uh, First Contact, and then you look at Insurrection, and they're directed by the same guy, you're like, why? You know, it's just, and there are some cool things about Insurrection, but it feels like uh, just a really long episode from like season six yeah and i think it would have made a better episode than it did a movie um the whole uh baku sona thing was just uh it was contrived and i thought it was silly um the briar patch itself and the planet with you know the regenerative uh you know properties that was a cool concept the visuals were stunning, of course, and <clears throat> I think 
Probably one of my favorite parts of the movie, though, was when Riker took, like, manual control with, like, the literal, like, flight stick and everything. And as silly as that was, it was just cool to see. Yep. Um, I, I, I get that, um, you know, for the movie, it was like, well, let's shave the beard. But I don't like Riker without a beard. Like, Riker with a beard just bothers me. Or without a beard just bothered me. Better with a beard. That's... Uh, it's my opinion. Um, was also a couple other things. Yeah, the whole like face stretching thing that was just. Eh. And the uh, and I the did stapling. Really, sorry, yeah. Them stapling. Yeah, yeah the stapling it. and the toxin removal and. Yeah. Um, I did really like the captain's yacht. That was cool that they utilized that finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they've ever done that in any show, was the, the yacht. <clears throat> Jordy's ocular impasse. I didn't talk about that in the first one, but because, or sorry, the second one in yep. First Contact, but because his eyes basically regrew, I, I noticed his implants more, and I just think that, like, that is just so badass that, you know, instead of being just blind, you can literally have like you know top of the line sensors built into your eyeballs i think that's just cool as fuck um i thought the hollow ship was meh kind of a boring the whole concept was just kind of eh um the duck blind the whole the whole plot just didn't really like drive very well to me i don't think um and then Maybe I'm just an idealist or something, but the the idea that like this, the Federation Council would have gone along with this whole plan just just feels wrong to me, you know. And the, the Admiral Dougherty, he's just like, yeah, the Federation Council Council approved this. Well, maybe you lied to them. Maybe something else is going on. And then of course, like the uh, how do you say that the, the the easy guess of one of the bad guys turning out to be, you know, helpful, whatever. That was just like, man, the, the, the whole movie was just kind of meh, you know, the whole aggressive tendencies from Worf and the Klingon puberty and, you know, the, the boob joke. Um, you know, I just, eh, I'm just, I was so like, Nonplussed. I was like, oh, this is just meh. I give it like a 4.5, 5 maybe at best for the whole movie. <clears throat> also, my least favorite of them all. So, yeah, that's that's all I got to say about that. Well, you, uh, because you already kind of touched on it, I'm just going to throw in there real quick before I get to Ragnar and Curtis the, the big plot hole. Um, and you kind of mentioned it. It's basically the whole plot. Um, so, okay, first of all, uh, the Buck, the Baku, like they're like Admiral Darty was not wrong. Like Picard and them guys actually were wrong in this movie, and in reality, um, they probably would have been court-martialed and probably would have lost their careers over this. Uh, but, but, but because they're the heroes, you know, we kind of ignore that and they get away with it. Um, and what I mean is, 
uh, Darty was right that the Prime Directive does not apply to these people. They're not indigenous to this planet. So... It, but it, was he aware of that specifically? Yep. Did, did, yep. did Ruafo explain that in detail to him? Because I don't remember that in the no, show. No, uh, Darty explains it to Picard. Because uh, they have a meeting in the ready room. Like, this is just before Picard decides to commit insurrection. Um, and he's like, the Prime Directive does not apply to these people. They are not indigenous to this planet. So, and it's a Federation planet in Federation space. <laughs> the Federation can do whatever they want. And to be honest with you, like the Baku, if they don't want to, like, because if this planet has these regenerative powers that can, you know, conceivably help, you know, trillions of people throughout the galaxy, uh, their own <coughs> galaxy, you know, with its healing properties and stuff, the Baku are kind of assholes by wanting to keep it to themselves. Like, there's only, like, 600 of them. Um, See, I don't think that they wanted to keep it to themselves. I think they would have been okay with some tourism, but it's a planet they settled in that the Federation had no idea it was even something they cared about until they realized that there was oil there or whatever, you know, like that was the thing. Like, it's just, it's kind of a, a trope, you know, they did the same thing when, um, <clears throat> when Crusher went off with the traveler, you know, they're relocating these people. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know. Just that the, the, the trope is just overused. Like, Oh yeah, we're just going to relocate a small amount of people to benefit a large group of people, that kind of thing. But, but the thing, the th the difference with that though, in this movie is Picard was going to enforce it. Like he was going to relocate them. No, even if they said no, uh, it was just the fact that they were able to work it out with the Cardassians that, th that they were able to stay. Um, whereas this version of Picard's like, no, this is not right. We're not doing this. And I'm like, but, it, like, what happened to the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few? Like, that was the lesson we got from Star Trek 2. And Picard, you know, like you like you were saying, Rich, in that episode Journey's End in Season 7, uh, Picard was going to uproot the natives. Like, like he, he was trying to negotiate with them. He was trying to get them to move to another planet. They weren't having it, so Worf was going to, you know, like they were getting ready to beam them out. Um, you know, same, you know, earlier in that season when they did that episode with, uh, his foster brother, uh, oh, uh, Rojanko, um, um, Nikolai, Nikolai, uh, like they were like, if Nikolai hadn't saved those people, Picard and them were going to let them die. So I just find it so funny, like in this movie that Picard would just like go against the Federation the way he did. Um, you know, well, he had a total crush on that chick, though. Oh yeah, like I, I you know, like I totally get chasing, <clears throat> chasing tail and all that, but still, <clears throat> I, I just don't. And I know they're trying to explain, like they, as they're, you know, uh, exposed to this planet, they're all getting younger, uh, or feeling younger, and all these things are happening. So maybe that influenced Picard's thinking. You know, maybe you know a twenty-year-old Captain Picard would have done that versus uh you know 60 year old captain picard maybe but like to be honest like the fact that they went against admiral dowdy like i mean that would have been a court-martial offense and i and to me that was like the biggest plot hole is you know 
Like they, sh- it should have just been written better. Like that, that was the, it, it, it comes down to the writing of the movie. Um, like I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, I just, I I'm not siding with Picard on this one. Like the needs of the many, man, like that, that's what we got to focus on. Um, but I think it was, it just came down to the writing of the movie. Like they didn't really think it out as much as, 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 you know, some other people like myself did. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, Curtis, what, what are your overall thoughts on Star Trek Insurrection? Data walked in a lake and pet a fish. That's what I remember from that movie. I just, it was so (laughs) bloody boring. I, I I thought about this for the last couple of days and I was, I have nothing to say about insurrection. I, I don't like the female character that Picard was crushing on. She comes off as like too high and mighty and superior. And that's it. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the plot is. I thought about rewatching it, but I just, I didn't want to give up that much of my weekend <laughs> to be that bored. Yeah. Um, I really don't have much to say, to be honest. Um, it, it's still better than any J.J. Abrams movie. Like, get, you know, um, but, you know, there were some good things. Like, I, I, do, I do like the space battle. I, uh, you know, um, you know, like, like, uh, I think Richard was saying, like, you know, when Riker takes the joystick there, like that, honestly, when, when I got my Jonathan Frakes autograph, uh, the, when I met him, um, that was the picture I chose was the beardless Riker with the joystick on the bridge of the Enterprise E. Uh, I was like, that was such a badass moment. I want him to autograph that picture. So that was the one I chose. Um, and another, uh, glaring plot hole is when when Troy and Riker kiss and she says I've never kissed you with a beard before it's like yes you have several times <laughs> like and like oh, and Thomas Riker also yeah it's like does you know like Marina Sirtis like I I don't know like you would think as an actress she would remember having kissed Jonathan Frakes during the show and it would be like, well, this line doesn't make any sense. I'm not, to you know. be fair, to be fair, they totally probably shoot like multiple versions of some scenes, and then in post production figure out which one they're going to use. So that, maybe she that, doesn't remember, yeah, which one they used, which one they didn't. Like maybe she's had all kinds of makeout scenes with them, and she's like, well, they, I don't know what they used, so I don't know what's canon. That that is true because I I have uh, seen. Uh, an interview with Patrick Stewart where he says like when he goes like, you know, to conventions and stuff, like he'll, you know, turn on the TV and sometimes a TNG episode will be on. And because he never watched them when they came out and still hasn't watched them all. A lot of times he's seeing it for the first time since he filmed it. Um, which, which I, I must be an actor thing. Like, cause I would think I, I would be watching every episode trying to, improve on myself but then again we podcast i don't go back and listen to all my podcasts either so i guess there is that i guess i can relate i've i've totally listened to our stuff but that's because i used to do a job that had long boring stretches sitting in a truck with nothing to do but listen to stuff so i still do that job and i do occasionally listen to our old episodes just to (laughs) see like 
what they sound like and if there's things that like me personally like i could do better you know yeah <clears throat> excellent i i've never listened to one of our recordings and that and that's perfectly fine i totally get it um so maybe yeah. you should one time yeah yeah that'd be fun yeah i think i will sometime yep um all right ragnar what what are your overall thoughts of star trek insurrection Honestly, I've only seen this one once, which was the first time I saw it, and I really didn't like it. I thought it was lame. Um, I thought, like, Generations kicked ass. First Contact kicked ass. What happened here? This sucks. So, I don't have a whole lot to say. I, I didn't think it was very good. I thought it was weak on a lot of fronts. And I think everybody involved could have done better. Yeah. And again, um, getting to the studio interference thing with this movie, it was like a mandate that they had to go lighter. Like they want, basically they wanted like, the, they wanted the voyage home. They wanted a, a movie where there was more jokes. It was not uh, as serious okay. But they still wanted an action scene. They still wanted a space battle. They still wanted a villain, and this is what we got. Because uh, I, I honestly felt like like this this movie in particular just felt like a high budget episode, mm -hmm. whereas oh, yeah. the other two movies that preceded this very much did not feel like that. They felt like movies. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, I totally, this was like, totally agree. Oh, this just feels like an episode that they had a bigger budget for. Yeah, I thought as well. Yeah, but um, I did like F. Murray Abraham as Ruafo. I thought I thought he he was a pretty good villain. Well, he he's always incredible. He has literally never been in a role that sucked. He's been in movies and and shows that sucked, but, but his role good. is always incredible. Yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. And and there um. There was a rumor uh, floating around that originally they were going to have Ronnie Cox uh, be in this movie as the as Admiral Jellico, and he would have oh. been he would have been the admiral working with with the Sona on this. Uh, that would have been interesting. It would have been interesting, but I the fact that they killed off Dowdy, I wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, I I thought you know like it was. You know, and again, I don't think he was wrong. Like I, you know, he just got in league with some bad people. Um, but I think, given the information he had, he was he was working in the best interests of the Federation. And but I am kind of glad they didn't go the Jellico route because I would hate to have seen Jellico taken out that way. Um, mm -hmm. Although I'd love to have seen him in uh, a Next Generation movie, at in some capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah that would have been cool. You know what? I gotta say, I I think that Jellico might have been more towards you know Picard's side on that one. Like he was very much like he seemed like a hard ass, but he had like you know some thoughts of like you know how people felt and stuff. I like that they went with an unknown admiral that they could just kill off. You know, they could like make him the bad guy or whatever of the movie. Yeah, but I just I don't know I. I Pressman, I could have seen Pressman for sure. Like, I think Pressman could have been that like that Dowerty if they wanted to go with like a, an admiral or a captain from the show. I think 
they could have used Pressman for that. <clears throat> but I don't think that Jellicoe would have been a good fit for that that role. Yeah, and yeah, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Pressman would have been good, but I think probably he he was taken out of Federation um, service yeah. following what happened with the Pegasus. Um, but it would, like, it would have been neat if the, he hadn't, and it was a revenge type of thing, maybe. Um, one thing about Insurrection that always kind of confused me is, uh, like, Michael Piller, who was one of the showrunners on TNG, uh, he co-created Deep Space Nine, co-created Voyager. Uh, he left Voyager, he was the showrunner of Voyager until season two, and then he left... Uh, to do other projects and stuff. He actually uh, co-wrote this movie. Um, and he wrote Best of Both Worlds, part one and two. So it just blows my mind that the same guy that wrote the most, one of the most iconic two-part episodes, not in just Star, uh, TNG, but in all of Star Trek and all of television, wrote this movie. Like, it just doesn't feel like the same person. Kind of the way it doesn't feel like Jonathan Frakes directed it. Like, it... I don't know. Too too much studio interference, I think, with this one. Um, all right, so uh, uh, I guess it would be four years later. Um, in 2002, we got Star Trek Nemesis. Um, this, again, was a mixed bag for me. Um I was really excited when I heard that the Romulans were going to be in this movie uh, because the Romulans are one of my favorite antagonists um, in Star Trek, especially on TNG. Um, yeah. And I was really hoping that if you're going to bring the Romulans into it, that we would maybe see Sela again. Maybe we would see Tomalok, um, you know, because I, I really like uh, the actor Andreas Katsoulis who played Tomalok. I really oh man like he was awesome and he was on Babylon 5 oh yeah like that's Jakar amazing he, he was such a great actor yeah um yeah, 100% and uh unfortunately he passed away I think it was 2006 ish um he passed away from lung cancer uh, but he would have been still around for for uh 2002 so you know, I was really hoping, or have Denise Crosby come back as Sela, or you know, maybe do a movie about Spock's underground movement. Like maybe we would see Spock, um, but we didn't see any of them. Instead, we got a clone of Picard, um, played by Tom Hardy, uh, a young Tom who, Hardy, who did, who was pretty convincing looking. He he was as a young Picard. Yep, he was you know he was very convincing. I thought. I think the the only downside is, uh, I mean, uh, when there's that scene when when Picard and and Crusher are talking and she, he shows her a picture of himself in his old like Starfleet uniform when he was an ensign and and it's Tom Hardy uh, in the uniform. They should have done a flashback scene with Tom Hardy as Picard. Um, then I can I would have bought into him being the clone a little bit more, I think. Um, uh, uh, 
I kind of felt a little detached. Like he did a good job, but in the in the same way, like uh, like years later when they did uh, uh, X Men: Days of Future Past, where he had James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart in the same movie playing yeah. the same character, you you felt like they were the same person. I think that they should have done that with this movie. We should have got a flashback of Picard and maybe Jack Crusher on the Stargazer. You know, maybe something happened, you know, with the Romulans or or something with the Stargazer years before. And then now years later, um, it's it's coming back again. And and now we see Tom Hardy. Um, But anyway, I digress. Um, Overall... I, I do think it's a shame they ended with this movie. Um, again, they didn't know what at the time. I think the intention was they were going to make more movies, but because this one uh, didn't do as well. And uh, I, I think I mentioned the, the head of Paramount did not like Star Trek. Um, so he was like, no, we're kind of done now. Um, that always kind of bothered me. Um but, you know, Data sacrificing himself, I thought was, you know, great. Um, this episode, or this episode, this movie had some cameos. We got to see Guinan again uh, for a scene. We got to see Wesley, even though he didn't have any lines in the movie, there is a deleted scene with him. Uh, apparently he was going to be on the Titan. Like, he, he was done his, his, his time with the Traveler, and he was going back to Starfleet. Um for a time, because now he's a traveler. He's also an insurrection, briefly. Was he? Um, Wesley Crusher was in the wedding in the wedding scene. No, that that's that's this movie. That's the beginning of this movie. Yeah. Oh, right. I thought we were talking about Nemesis already. Oh, no, we are talking yeah. about Nemesis. Yeah. Cause... Oh, that's right, because the, the, the wedding scene was in... Yeah, okay, never mind. I got confused. Oh, it's all yeah, that's right. Because insurrection... had more lines. Insurrection, they uh, Troy and Riker get back together, and then this movie they get married. Um, yeah. But yeah, I wish they would have had Wesley have some lines, or at least be on the Enterprise with them. Like I think, you know, if they're gonna, if the intention was that they were, because when they leave Earth and the wedding ceremony, the intention is that they're going to Beta Z for the second ceremony. So, um, yeah, you know, it makes sense if Wesley was tagging along. And that's why Worf was tagging along, um, you know, but then they got diverted because of what was happening on Romulus. Um, but, you know, um, overall, it's not the worst, you know, Star Trek movie, but uh, definitely not my favorite. Um, better than Insurrection. Uh, I did love uh, seeing the re- uh, the Reman um, because that was uh, something that was mentioned all the way back in the original series episode Balance of Terror that uh, Romulus uh, had a, a moon that orbit orbit uh, Romulus Remus and then we get to see the Remans in this movie which I thought was fantastic. Uh, I loved that Ron Perlman was in this movie as uh, the Viceroy, because um, he's one of my favorite actors. If, if you guys have ever watched Sons of Anarchy, you know he's fantastic. He's you know he's Hellboy, Hellboy 
he was the beast on on the TV series Beauty and the Beast. I I just really like that guy. He, he's a oh, he's guy. a friggin' great actor. Yeah. Um, it was also in Alien Four. I don't think I've seen that one, but he was in. He was one of the voice. He was one of the voices in Pinocchio, the animated movie that just won an Academy Award. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, he was like the bad guy. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, he he was a great actor. I I felt he got underutilized in this movie. Um, oh, absolutely, he was wasted in this movie. Like he could have been the main yeah. bad guy. Um. He should have been, yeah. Although, again, not to knock Tom Hardy, he did a great job, and it was kind of interesting, but eh, I kind of felt it was not really necessary. But, And, I mean, if you're going to do a clone of Picard, why not just have Patrick Stewart play an evil version of himself? Like, that would have been kind of cooler, yeah. I think. That would have been awesome. But, when have you ever seen Patrick Stewart be a bad guy, except for when he was Locutus? Yeah. So would have been, that would have been totally cool. Well, he was also Captain Ahab, which wasn't like, well, yeah, okay. necessarily a bad guy, but yeah, okay. kind of not really a hero either. But yeah, um, I don't really have a lot to say about this other than um, I wish this hadn't been the last movie, um, and I wish we could have got a little bit more closure at the end. Like I know it's kind of implied at the end of the movie that Worf is going to stay on as first officer, but they don't actually say it. And there is a deleted scene where there is an actual different guy coming <clears throat> on to, onto the ship as first officer. Um, but I know in the book series, like the, the ones that they did after this, the continuation Worf does become the first officer, which I think was, was pretty fitting. Um, yeah, I'm actually reading. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but, uh, Worf's the first officer and they got a new count, a Vulcan counselor. Um, they got a, a new security chief who was one of the yellow shirts from first contact. He was one of the guys that was fighting the Borg. Um, but they actually give him a name in the book. Like it, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I definitely would have liked to have seen more movies. Or you know, even if they did like a Titan spinoff, like a, you know, like something. Um, I mean, now we get Star Trek season three of Picard, but eh. uh, at the time I was very disappointed that this was the last movie. Uh, Richard, what are your thoughts on Star Trek Nemesis? I think that they had a great foundation that they could have made a better movie from. Like, even if you just look at the poster, the poster is badass, right? Yeah, poster so it's got badass. It's got Shinzon on it with a blade in the air, like he's going to fight. It's got Data and Picard, like you know, it's a really cool poster. I like the um, the font they use, you know, for when they left Star Trek Nemesis. Yeah. Um, the new, the new Valdor birds of prey are badass as fuck. I love Romulan ships. Um, <clears throat> the, the scimitar insanely powerful, like crazy powerful remit ship. Um, 
I didn't like that they made Shinzon bald because in the academy and up until like lieutenant ish kind of years, Picard had hair. Yep. And that's canon, right? Like yep. the movies seem to forget sometimes about canon. And it was just. Uh, un- unless that I, I will say, unless Picard was actually wearing a toupee during those flashback scenes, which is well, po- which is possible because Patrick Stewart actually had a toupee. So not in the sh- not really in the show because no no the not, reason not, why not, not on the show the but yeah but in real in life. the show the the way Gene Roddenberry was saying is that like you know what eventually he came around to the idea. He's like, 21st century, he's not going to care if he's bald. So yeah. I, I I don't think that Cadet Picard would have cared that he was bald, but he wasn't. Uh, at least in in the show, it showed that he wasn't. When he had yeah. a, um, uh, a Nausicaan blade forced through his chest, piercing his heart, that motherfucker had hair, let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, that's true, yep. So that... that was a small bit of continuity that bothered me. Um, the the whole B four just happening to show up thing was just it was evident. It, you knew it was a trap. You knew that it was just bullshit. Um, I get why they did it to potentially have like an out if they wanted to bring data back. Like I get it, but still, just like eh, well, Jesus, like. It's just kind of blah. But the, the action scenes were pretty cool. There was some good fights. Riker was having that little, like, one-on-one with the Viceroy. Um, flying through the ship with little, like, fighter fighter jets. That was kind of cool. Uh, the whole uh, temporal RNA sequencing thing was just, like, I get it. But, again, like, the writing kind of meh. So I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd give it like, like a five, five, maybe six, maybe probably like a five, five is where I'm gonna like settle on overall. I do say though, the ramming speed actually for once in Star Trek, the ship rammed into the enemy ship, and that that was pretty cool. I gotta say. Um. um oh, go ahead, Rich. Didn't mean to cut. One you. last thing, the. When I did watch it for the first time, I did have like a single man tear when Data sacrificed himself. Like that is in character for Data. Like he would have done that if he thought it was the only option. He would not have thought twice. He would have been like, "What's that? I can save my ship. Sure, I'll sacrifice myself." So that was like that was in character. You know, I appreciated that. I didn't like that they had to force that in there. It's one of my favorite characters, but. I did have a little like sad moment because he's one of my yeah, favorite characters. And I think around that time, around like first contact insurrection, Nemesis is when they started to go like, how do we say like a little bit on the, on the, on the woke side, you know, that's kind of when they started and they were just like slowly slipping things in and whatnot. I, Something I noticed on this time around. Um, So a couple things I wanted to throw out there um, before I I toss it over. Um, 
So this one of the things about this movie is this was the first uh, TNG movie that was directed by someone who hadn't been associated with TNG. Uh, the first movie was directed by David Car uh, Carson, who I believe directed the pilot episode for Deep Space Nine, and he directed various episodes of TNG. Uh, so he was well-versed in Star Trek. Uh, and then, of course, the other two were directed by Jonathan Frakes. So this one was directed by a guy named Stuart Baird, um, who was not a Star Trek fan. And I know I've... I've um, seen interviews uh i think with marina Sirtis, where she said like this was she they didn't her and the cast and forgive me i might be misquoting here um didn't weren't really happy with this movie because they felt like um they weren't being heard um because like they because stuart baird didn't know anything about them didn't know their characters uh he had no um, familiarity with, with the cast and crew. Uh, so he didn't really listen to them when they would bring up things like they want, would, would rather do or suggestions. And he was like, no, that's not, you know, we're doing it this way. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, with David or with, uh, David Carson and Jonathan Frakes, it was more collaborative because they knew each other and they had to all work together. Uh, whereas Stuart Baird came in and was like, no, this is what we're doing. Um, also, uh, talking about studio mandates, the whole dune buggy scene was a studio mandate. Like they said, we, we got to see that we got to see them in a dune buggy. Um, but I'll give credit to the writer. I think he was a star Trek fan going into it. The guy that wrote the movie. Um, cause they're, you know, like, when I did my rewatch of, of TNG over Christmas, uh, I, I rewatched the seventh season episode. I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one with Data's mom. Um, because, oh, yeah. Um, was that Ileana? I, yeah. Ileana Taynor? Taynor? Whose actress was another actress that was in both Lost and Star Trek? Yes. Yep. Uh, she played Eloise Hawking in Lost. Yes. Oh, man, Eloise was a badass character. And if I remember correctly, I think her mom, like her in real life, played Captain Picard's mom in the first season. I think, if I remember correctly, that, yeah, like her mom actually played Picard's mom. But anyway, um, in that episode... And I completely forgot this because, like, I hadn't watched this episode since, you know, in, since the 90s. Um, it kind of bugged me in Star Trek Nemesis that B4 kind of came out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, like, why wasn't this mentioned before? But actually rewatching that episode, she does say that her and Dr. Soon had made androids before lore. Uh, but none of them, like, took. Like, they... Like they never kind of got out of their infancy so they were deactivated um and then they made lore and he went crazy uh so they deactivated him and then she w didn't want him to make another one but he did he ultimately made data so it is canon that there were androids before lore um so i, and I completely forgot about that so 
that was one nitpick that I'll take back from Nemesis that uh, they did actually establish that in Star Trek. Um, they just went about it poorly. I yeah, think. like it was just a little too, you know, you know, they happen to be flying past that planet, and the, you know, the, you know, anyway, it, yeah, some plot holes there. Uh, Curtis, what, what are your thoughts on Star Trek Nemesis? It was an enjoyable enough movie. Um, I'm going to join the sentiment, the anti-B4 sentiment, and it felt really shoehorned and unnecessary and kind of took away from Data's... Hero- I love the heroic sacrifice. It's like my favorite device in any movie, any story. The heroic sacrifice just gets to me every time. Yep. And having a way to back out of that is like, cowardly and yeah, almost a little value. bit disrespectful you know it's like okay great so that meant less now it didn't mean nothing data still did that thing and you know it it was the ultimate culmination of data's quest toward humanity that's that's it there's nothing more human than that um the movie was enjoyable enough other than that i love the scimitar the scimitar was a bass-looking ship, um, and Shinzong was cool. Yeah, I don't know. Good movie. Mm-hmm. Fun story. So the first time Richard and I went down to Vulcan, uh, the Trek Satra Museum was still up and running and was completely awesome. And so we paid for our tour, and we went through, and we checked it all out. And uh, once we got out of the, the corridor where he had all the uniforms set up, um Mike was his name? Yeah, I think it the was The proprietor Mike. there? Yeah. I think it was. So he hands us a prop phaser, and it, it's heavy, surprisingly heavy. It's made out of, like, stainless steel. Richard and I, you know, I get it first. I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I pass it over to Richard, and Richard's like, yeah, this is totally cool. And then I wasn't paying attention the first time, but Mike explained that that was the prop that Brent Spiner used in the scene where Data sacrifices himself. That was like the phaser that saved the crew and the Enterprise, right? Yeah, the yeah. hero prop. Right, and then Richard and I were both like, uh, what? And he had to explain <laughs> it again, and I was like, I just held that? There's a picture of it somewhere. I don't have it. I'm, I hope Richard has it somewhere. but Somewhere in the archives, I'm sure it's there. That prop's long gone now, I'm sure, but... Uh, yeah, that's our cool, fun personal story about Star Trek Nemesis. So it just adds a little bit of extra flavor for me personally. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm sure somebody has it somewhere, but we'll never know probably. Yeah. No, that 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 is awesome. And I, you know, like having Data sacrifice himself, like that was heartbreaking. It, it really was. Um, but them having before and all that, like that was definitely, you know. Search for or um, Rathacon, you know, with when Spock, you know, mind melts with McCoy and says, "Remember, you know, like it was just a backdoor way, just in case they make another movie and Brent Spiner decides, well, I kind of want to do another one. Um, I kind of want twenty million dollars, so sure. Yeah, because the reason why they they actually did it, like it was actually something that Brent Spiner wanted, uh, because he felt he was getting too old to play a android that's not supposed to age um 
So yeah. So he was like, I can't keep doing this. I mean, this was before deep fakes, right? Like this was before, you know, you could de-age people in movies. Um, so he was like, yeah, you know, like let, let's just have him go out on a high note. Um, so I, I'm totally cool with that. But they wanted to leave that little back doorway just in case, um, which they used in season one of Picard, which totally didn't make sense. But anyway. Um, <laughs> we do get data's return, sort of, but yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Ragnar, what are what are your thoughts on Star Trek Nemesis? Well, I think Richard said it best. They they, you know, they had the bones of a good story, and they could have made a really good movie, but they didn't. And mm-hmm. it's like three out of five at best. Yeah, uh, it's not horrible, but it ain't great, and. It could have been a lot more than it was, especially if we'd known that this was going to be the last movie with with them. And until Picard came out, the last thing with them, it would have been cooler to have gone out on a higher note. Yeah. But uh, they they didn't necessarily know that at the time. Uh, But yeah, yeah, three out of five. Um, I remember when it originally came out, I had been so disillusioned with the last movie, I didn't even bother to see it. But I was working at a movie theater and it was playing, so I, I got to watch bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. when I would have to go into the theater to check that everything was working fine. And I was like, actually, this looks pretty good. So I did eventually sit down and watch the whole movie, and I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's not great. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But I did think Tom Hardy was pretty convincing as a young Jean-Luc Picard. I remember thinking that, like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. And I definitely feel like they, you know, yeah, could have could have done a lot more with this, but it was okay. Yeah, I yeah I agree. Um, yeah, because I guess they didn't know it was the last movie either. Like it, you know, like like I don't know. Some people say no. Like, I suspect that the cast would have assumed there'd be another one. Yeah, or or something. Um, because yeah, like when you look at Star Trek six, the undiscovered country, it was such a nice send off for that original cast. Oh yeah. Um, compared, compared to this, this is not really a send off movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so just to interject one quick thing here is that nemesis did do the most poorly, uh, as far as dollar signs. So, Nemesis was the bottom of the barrel for all 10 movies, um, and number nine being The Final Frontier. Every other movie did over $100 million, or close to it at least. Okay. <clears throat> so um, Final Frontier was $70 million and Nemesis was $67.300 million. Wow. So that, that's, a, that's a big, like... For them, because when I look at Generations, First Contact, and Interactions, I did 118, 146, and 112, respectively. And then immediately, <clears throat> Nemesis was at 67 worldwide. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a huge factor in why they didn't. Yeah. And then for some reason, seven years later, um, the overall gross for the 2009 Star Trek was nearly 400 million 
which is nearly the total gross of the TNG wow. movies. <clears throat> and then the second movie, Inner Darkness, did $467 million, which yeah. is better than the total gross of all four TNG movies. <clears throat> and then Star Trek Beyond did 343 yeah. And altogether, they did um, $1.1 billion. So, like, the, the gross numbers are very, very extreme. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, all right. Well, I think we're getting uh, pretty much to the end of the episode. Um, real quick, though, <clears throat> I forgot to mention this on the Generations thing. Um, it always kind of bugged me that Harriman was, seemed like such an incompetent captain. Um, like, it, I just find it strange that, like, you know, like, a guy would rise to the ranks of captain, but yet seemingly be so incompetent, I guess, during an emergency situation. Um, and I always thought that <clears throat> what they should have done for that movie is Chekhov should have been captain of the Enterprise B. Because well, that uh, would have been cool. It never made sense to me on, on Generate. Like, I understand, like, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, all of them going into retirement, because they're all older. Whereas Chekhov was, he's 15 years younger than Kirk. Like, I, I think, had undiscovered country time, it w he would have been too young to retire. And why wouldn't he become a captain? On You know, like, I just, I just felt like if Harriman had been the first officer and he had been the captain, it would have been a better overall movie. But anyway, um, let's call it an episode. We'll put a pin in this discussion. Um, but before we go, let's play that little game of where we can find you on the internet. And Curtis, where can we find you, sir? Well, I was muted. Uh, well, I'm <laughs> on Facebook in the Track 1701 group. Um, you can find me there. Excellent. And Richard, where can we find you, sir? Uh, right here, mostly, but if you really, really need to get a hold of me, I'm sure you could tag one of these guys in the group and they'll pass along a message. I don't follow the Facebooks, but um, <clears throat> I'll give a double shout-out for right now to Trader.com because of how awesome it is. Uh, I haven't been able to get some stuff, but I need to soon. Well, thanks, bud. Uh, and Ragnar, where can we find you, sir? Well, uh, as Richard so kindly said, RagnarTheTrader.com is my main website. Uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram as RagnarTheTrader. And uh, I have a ton of shows coming up in, from mid-March to mid-June. I, I have a show either every weekend or every other weekend uh, all across Alberta and bc i don't think i have any saskatchewan shows at that time just just alberta and bc but uh yeah i'll be all over the place and you can check on my website where i'll be next excellent um you can oh, find yeah. you can find me here at the pop culture pub podcast network we got some episodes of pop culture pub and geek fallout reloaded that'll be coming up after this episode so be on the lookout for those and yeah I think uh, we can call this an episode. So on behalf of all of us, the Star Trek guys, uh, Chris Lockhart, Richard Zabo, uh, Ragnar, and Curtis Holloway, I want to thank you, dear listener, for taking the time to listen to us talk about Star Trek on Trek 1701, a Star Trek podcast. And we will see you again 
in the not-too-distant future.